The reading tonight is James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here is a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated against yourselves and become judge- among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. But you have dishonoured the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin, and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's word. Well, good evening, everyone. Let me add my welcome. If we haven't met, my name's James. I'm one of the apprentices here, and it's good to be with you. Um, Should we pray together as we come to God's word? Father, as we come to the mirror, which is your word... Um, I pray that you would grant all of us to see into your word and to change as we respond to it. Father, please would none of us look at it and go away not changing, but see it as your word. And I pray that you would help us to do this in your name. Amen. Now, as I was preparing for this, I watched one of um, those social experiment videos on YouTube Um, It's one of those ones where they go out into the public and they film things happening and see what the members of the public do in response to that. And so what they did is they got the first man and dressed him up um, as a businessman. They dressed him up in good clothes, carrying a laptop bag. But they also gave him a a big pair of crutches. Uh, And as he walked around, he deliberately tripped over and fell flat on his face. Uh, And they got um, someone with a camera to record how people responded. So as this um, businessman trips over and falls, what you see, as you'd expect, is members of the public turning around and running to him, helping him back to his feet. And this repeats itself a number of times. And then halfway through the video, he he goes and changes clothes. So the man um, puts on, uh, takes off the business suit and dresses up as if he were homeless. And everything changes except the crutches. And he goes off and does the same thing. And as he walks off, he trips and falls flat on his face again. And, and it's quite an uncomfortable video to watch, actually. 
as people look round and see the man who's fallen to the floor and they register he's homeless and then walk on. And you see it happen not just once, but again and again and again. You see, appearances really do matter. People love judging by appearances. And yet, James says in James chapter 2 that if you're a Christian, you must not show favoritism. That word favoritism, it, it means to receive a face. That is, to judge by something external, by what you can see. And James says, if you're a Christian, verse 1, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. But we know that appearances make a, a big difference. Apparently, within the first seven seconds, everyone in this room has decided whether or not they like me already, based on my appearance. And within the first 30 seconds, all of you have decided whether or not you're going to listen to me. That's on a small level. But, but you take it to a big level, and that same sort of thinking is the thinking that inspires people to shout out racist abuse on a tube of people they've never met because of their skin colour. We, we know that even on a small level and on a massive level as well, We love judging by appearances. But James says, do not show favoritism. Don't receive a face. Don't look at someone and see what they look like on the outside and then make a judgment on them. You'll know if you've been here that we've been working our way through this book of James. And a big theme in the book is double-mindedness. That is, calling yourself a Christian And yet, living in a way completely inconsistent with that. We've seen it all the way through chapter 1. We've seen it when it comes to trials. Will you trust God's goodness in them, that he's working through them to help you persevere, or will you start blaming him? When temptation comes, what will you do? Will you walk one way? Will you trust God, that he gives everything that's good to you? Or instead, will you follow your own sinful desires? gives us a choice. Will you be double-minded? Will you go to and fro between those two? And he, he, cont- he tells us again and again to live consistently as a Christian. Don't be double-minded. And this evening, you'll see on your sheets at the top, I've put there Jesus glory or worldly gold. Really, that is the, the question that James is confronting us with. Will you choose the glory of Jesus or will you choose what the world values, worldly gold? It's coming straight from verse 1. Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Will you choose the glory of Jesus or will you show favoritism? So we'll break it down as you see it on your sheets. Verses 1 to 4, Jesus' glory or worldly gold. Then we'll see how he develops that in verses 5 to 7 and 8 to 13 as he tells us to live lives that are merciful. So firstly, verses 1 to 4, Jesus' glory or worldly gold. Let's look down at those verses together. Chapter 2, verse 1. He says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you sit over there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James imagines a gathering of the church, not unlike our own. 
And the welcome team have already arrived. They've folded the sheets and they're getting ready to welcome people into the church. And the first person walks in. And as he arrives in his chauffeur-driven car and walks through the front door, it's immediately obvious that he is a very, very wealthy man. Everything about what he's wearing screams of wealth, the tailored suit, the, the expensive watch on his wrist. And he hands out a business card, and you can see that this guy makes a lot of money. And immediately the, the eyes of the, the welcome team start looking over, and they all rush round to him straight away. And what do they do? They, they take him to the serving area. They give him coffee. They think, this is an impressive man. He's got to meet one of the ministers. So where's the minister? Let me take him to, to the minister because he's impressive. Surely he's got to meet one of the ministers. And then they take him to the seat and, and introduce him to some other people, bankers who work in the area. And he's invited to the pub afterwards. And the welcome team think, yep, tick, job done. Got this man in. But while all that's been going on, there's another man who's walked into the church. You'll see that. He's described as a man wearing filthy old clothes. And this man who's wearing filthy old clothes is completely the opposite to the man who's rich. He doesn't look impressive in any way. And of course, at the door, the the welcome team hand him a sheet and kind of vaguely point towards the coffee and say, oh, the seats are over there. But no one speaks to him. No introduction. He's not um, introduced to any friends. He's just left to his own. Now, what's the problem? What's going on? Now, it's not that the rich man has been given a good welcome. That's not the problem at all. Everyone should be warmly welcomed into the church. It's not the fact that the rich man has got a good welcome. The problem is that the way that the poor man has been treated compared to the rich man shows that there is evil going on in the hearts of the church. I mean, that's the word that's used in verse 4. Do you see that at the end, verse 4? You've become judges with evil thoughts. James says that's an evil thing to do. Judging based on appearances is evil. Now you need to know that in verse 1, the the word favoritism is really plural. It should be favoritisms, if that's a word. In other words, we, we could take this little story and we could rewind it and we could replay it through with different sets of people. And we're confronted with the question, who would we pick? Would we treat both the same? Would we welcome both? Or would we treat them differently? So, for example, we could rewind the story and we could play it with um, the first person coming into the room is clearly a high-powered lawyer. I mean, she speaks very, very good English and, well, she's clearly got an impressive job. And then the next person who walks in is, well, a McDonald's worker, just come off the shift. Perhaps an immigrant who doesn't speak very good English. The question is, would you pick one or the other to welcome them? Or what about um, the, the slightly cool-looking person in their, their late 20s who's very socially confident? And as they come into the church and you start talking to them, good banter develops between the two of you, and things seem to be going well. And then another person walks in, slightly shy-looking, a bit awkward. Perhaps you know, a student wearing a, a Star Trek T-shirt is just kind of sidling off to the corner. The question is, do you go and offer them the same welcome? as you have just done to this socially confident person? Or what about 
the uncommonly beautiful lady who walks into the room compared to the more ordinary-looking person? Or what about someone who comes from the same country that we do? So we feel like we can offer them a a really good welcome and then someone else from a different country comes in and we, we don't want them in our group. So you can replay the story and over and over again with all sorts of different ways of judging people externally. But James would say the same thing about all of them. It's evil. Do not show favoritism. If anything in you would instinctively lean towards the the more impressive person, well, James says that makes you guilty of favoritism. And I take it that, that this way of thinking is is not just something that kind of happens in churches out there or back in James's day. Um, I take it that if you're anything like me, you do find just creeping into your head occasionally those sorts of questions when someone's talking to you. Why are you talking to me? <laughs> Why can't someone else be talking to me? Or how can I get this conversation over as quickly as possible so I can go and talk to that person instead? Or when someone walks in and you see, I I really hope that the welcomers go and speak to them because I don't want to speak to that person. If you're anything like me, sometimes these thoughts just pop into our heads. It's not just something for churches out there. And James says that this sort of judging by appearances, well, it's double-minded. Now, verse 1, I think, is the key. So look down again at verse 1. We said it, I said at the start, um, Jesus glory or worldly gold. Verse 1, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Now the translation slightly smoothed it. The the emphasis there is on of the glory. Jesus of the glory. That's what he's emphasizing. And so how is it that Jesus' glory helps us as we think about the subject of favoritism? Why does James bring that up? Well, let me try and explain. About 2,000 years ago, the Roman Empire dominated the world. So so the center of um, culture and influence was found in Rome. That was the place everyone wanted to be. But but this story begins about 1,500 miles away from Rome. It begins in a territory in in Israel, far away. And of course, Jerusalem is, is the center of Israel. That's the religious center, the political center. And yet the man Jesus wasn't from Jerusalem. He was from the north. He was from Nazareth. Nazareth, people sometimes would say, can anything good come from Nazareth? Jesus was from there. It was a mix of Jewish and Gentile people, not the sort of place the the religious elites wanted you to come from. He would have spoken with a thick Galilean accent. Uh, And if you judge by outward appearances, Jesus, he didn't have much going for him. His parents were poor. His dad was a carpenter. He didn't have a high-powered job. We're even told that that Jesus wasn't much to look at. One description, he he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. In fact, even as Jesus gained followers during the three years of his public life, what you find is that most of his followers were people who were unimpressive. The common people. The lame, the blind, the poor. In fact, when Jesus turned up at um, events with the culture makers and influences, influence people of the world, what you found is he'd often say socially awkward things that you shouldn't say at a dinner party. That's what Jesus used to do. 
He had no money from his public life. He had nowhere to lay his head. And eventually this man, Jesus, was abandoned by all his followers and closest friends and died on the cross as a criminal. If you judge Jesus by appearances, you would say that he came from the wrong country, the wrong region, spoke with the wrong accent, had the wrong parents, the wrong job, the wrong education, the wrong bank balance, the wrong looks, the wrong friends, and the wrong death. If you judge Jesus by appearances. And yet, if you are a Christian, what I've just described to you is the life of the most glorious person that ever lived. That's what we've just been singing of in the songs. We've just been singing of the cross of the Lord Jesus and how it is glorious beyond measure. At the cross of Jesus, if you're a Christian, you don't judge by outward appearances. You see beyond the outward appearance of Jesus. And you see who he is, the son of God made flesh. You see his character revealing God to us. And you see his actions to save sinners. You see, at the cross of Jesus, you can't judge by outward appearances. And so if you're a Christian, to call Jesus glorious and yet to judge others by outward appearances, it doesn't make any sense. It's double-minded because if Jesus walked into the room, he would be the one who's left in the corner if we judge by outward appearances. And yet because Christians see him as glorious, that means that we've decided not to look at outward appearances. It's double-minded to you. So that's the first point. Jesus would say, James would say, sorry, that it's double-minded. If you see Jesus as glorious, you can't judge by appearances. But in the rest of the section, James develops his point. So in verses 5 to 7, we see that God's choice displays mercy. God's choice displays mercy. Let's look down at verses 5 to 7. God's choice displays mercy. He says, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? So James, again, he looks around the church and at a time when there wasn't really a middle class, people were either really poor or really rich. He he looks around and he sees, well, most of the people in the church are poor. And actually it's the rich people outside who are persecuting. It's the rich people who are blaspheming. Now again, James knows that there are rich Christians. He mentions some of them in his letter. And James knows that it's not automatic that poor people become Christians. It has to be those who love Jesus. That's what it says, verse 5. But he says it bluntly, that God has chosen those who are poor, whereas the rich are those who reject. Now, as we sit in a church that has many rich people, we might be confused. But what he's doing is he's stating a point that has been overwhelmingly true throughout the history of the church, that it is the poorer people who tend to be Christians rather than the richer people. Now, it's not that God is guilty of kind of an inverted form of favoritism. That is, we choose rich people because they're rich, and God chooses poor people on the basis of them being poor. And so we show favoritism, God shows favoritism. It's just a different sort. What does it matter? No, no. God chooses the poor on the basis of his character. 
God chooses the poor on the basis of his character, namely his mercy. That is, God leans towards those who are in need. And you see, more often than not, it's the rich who don't think they have any need. More often than not, it's the rich who think they can sort out their own problems, don't need God, they can just reject him. Whereas the poor, those who have very little, tend to be those who acknowledge their need, who can't sort it out themselves and so cry out to God. And so God chooses those who are poor. And if you've been with us this year at our midweek groups, as we've looked through Luke's gospel, you'll have seen this again and again in the life of Jesus. You'll have seen it as he shows mercy to the outsider, as he shows mercy to those who are are poor, those who are lame, those who are blind. Again and again and again in Luke's gospel, all the way through, Jesus shows mercy to those who are in need. Recently, I I heard a report from a missionary, a pastor in the UK who had gone out to Cambodia for um, a few weeks to do some missionary work there. And he was telling the story of how, as he was in Cambodia, um, he came across, him and his translator, a woman who was sitting by the side of the road. Um, This woman was clearly very poor. Um, She was about in her 90s. She'd been a widow for many decades. And her life consisted of, she would go to the side of the road every day with a bowl of mangoes, and she would try and sell these mangoes to get enough money to live. That's what her life consisted of. And and this pastor who was over there saw this woman on the side of the road in need. And so he went over and he bought the whole bowl of mangoes from her, even though most of them were rotting, just so that she she could get some money. And a conversation developed between them. And and it turned out that this poor woman um, said, she said, I don't think anyone loves me. And so the pastor, having got into a, a conversation with her, shared the love of the Lord Jesus with her for the first time in her life. And that day, as far as he could tell, she trusted in Jesus. Now, what does that tell us about the character of God? That out of all the impressive people in the offices that we work in, who we've told the gospel and have rejected it, that God would choose this poor woman in Cambodia, what does that tell us about his mercy? It's extraordinary. God chooses the poor. And that is, that is wonderful news, actually, if you're here this evening and you're someone who the world has discounted. That is wonderful news. Because if you look down at, at verse 5, it says, God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. See, just because the world discounts you, says you're a second-class person, doesn't mean that God does. In fact, in his mercy, he reaches out and says, you can come and be rich in faith. God says that if the world says you're a second-class citizen, there is no second class in the kingdom of God. Do you see that? Those who are poor in the eyes of the world have been chosen to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. Jesus says you're rich, not in terms of money, but in terms of riches in the same way that every Christian is rich. Sins forgiven, hope secured, spirit within us. We can pray to God as our father. Spiritual riches which are true for everyone who trusts in Jesus. Doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. And you're an heir. 
That is, you've been welcomed into God's family and you have the inheritance awaiting you of heaven. And if God has chosen those sorts of people, that means those sorts of people are completely welcome here at church. They are completely welcome here at church. If that's you, you don't have to sit on the fringes, even if the world would say you should go to the fringes. You are welcome to be involved here at church. Your faith is of the same value as everyone else's who trusts in Jesus. You can come midweek, you can get involved in serving. It doesn't matter who you are. If you trust Jesus, you are rich in faith. And of course, that challenges all of us that we would be a church who would be able to welcome such people in. That such people wouldn't be pushed to the sidelines. Because it displays the the character of God that he chooses those who need help. If we don't, we we dishonour God in the words of verse 6. And we show ourselves to be failing to show the same character that God shows, which is mercy. So there's the second point. God's choice displays his mercy. And then thirdly, God's law demands mercy. Let's look down then at verses 8 to 13. Verses 8 to 13. They say, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. You'll see that God's law is mentioned in every verse except the final one. And you'll see a few things about that law. So verse 8, it's a royal law given by the king. Verse 12, it's a law that gives freedom. It sets the boundaries within which we can enjoy freedom in this life. But the big thing that James wants us to see about the law is its unity. So verse 10, look down there. James says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. The law is united, so if you break one part, you're guilty of all of it. How does that work? I mean, one commentator has used this picture. Um, He says, imagine that the law is like a, a big pane of glass. And for anyone who's ever played football or cricket in the back garden as a teenager, you'll know that when you slightly overhit that cover drive and the ball hits the top of the pane of glass, the whole thing smashes. And James says, that's what God's law is like. You hit one part and the whole thing smashes. But why is that the case? I mean, it doesn't seem immediately obvious, but verse 11 helps us. Verse 11, for he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Do you see, he who said the first law also said the second law. The reason the law is like this pane of glass is because the same lawgiver lies behind it. And that lawgiver doesn't have a character that's disconnected and fragmented. When he projects his character through his law to us, the whole thing stands together. And so you you break one part of the law and all the other parts are joined to it and break as well. So, for example, if you show favoritism, you find that the whole of the the Ten Commandments come crashing down. So you choose a a rich man over a poor man and, and you find yourself guilty of having coveted riches 
or coveted the honor of being among the rich people. Or you find your actions start bearing false witness about what is truly valuable and what is not. You find that you've stolen from that poor person the time and the honor that they deserve and so on. You can work your way through all of them. You find the whole thing comes smashing down because you've assaulted the same lawgiver and so the whole law goes. And so what James commands us then in verse 12 is this. He says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. James demands that all of us live with judgment day in view. He says, remember that one day you and I and everyone are going to be called before God into the courtroom. And we're going to stand before God as judge, the king. And he's going to put that rule or up to us and going to see how it is that we have done compared to it. And as the charges against us are read out, unless anyone in this room thinks they have a perfect record, what we'll find is that the law has been smashed and we're guilty. And as the charges are read out in that slight second before the verdict is given, every single one of us will be hoping that God will show mercy to us because that's all we have left. We'll be hoping, we'll be desiring beyond anything that God will show us mercy. You see, to speak and act as those who are going to be judged is to know that on judgment day, we need the mercy of God. We need the mercy of God. And it's that that propels us to live merciful lives if we are Christians, knowing that we need God's mercy. You'll see that in uh, verse 13. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful See, here being merciful is, in a sense, the opposite to favoritism. Favoritism judges by externals. Mercy asks the question, who's in need and how can I help them? It doesn't matter what they look like. Who's in need? How can I help them? That's what mercy says. And if we know that we need the mercy of God on judgment day, then that will propel us to live merciful lives towards others. The Christian utterly dependent on the mercy of God will have to be merciful to others because mercy is what they desperately need. It's everything that person relies on. Of course, the question still remains. On judgment day, will we find there to be a God of mercy? Will we find there to be a God of mercy? Well, look with me at the very end of verse 13. James writes these words. Mercy triumphs. Over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Though he doesn't say it explicitly, James here is referring to the cross of Jesus Christ. That place where, though God, who stood against us as judge, who ought to condemn every one of us for breaking his law, at the cross of Jesus, in his mercy, he put one forward who would stand in our place. One who would take the penalty, the full weight of that law on himself and take the consequences of it for us. As we've sung already in the songs this evening, we have a lamb who has died in our place. And in his resurrection, Jesus has shown to all the world that mercy has triumphed over judgment. That God has taken Jesus' sacrifice in our place and said, I accept that. So that when you and I step forward into that courtroom on judgment day and we find that we stand guilty before God's law, if we are trusting in Jesus, 
there is mercy. There is mercy through Jesus. Mercy and judgment have collided and mercy has triumphed in Jesus Christ. And it's that 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 propels Christians to merciful living. It is that that propels us to put aside favoritism, to put aside judging others by what we can see and instead looking around and going, how can I help? Who is there in need? How can I offer help to them? After all, that is how we need God to treat us. It's what we're praying that he would do and know he will do through Jesus on judgment day. What that means is, as new people move into London over the summer and come through the door, everyone will be welcome. Everyone will be welcome. We won't look at, oh, who's, who's that? Do I like them? Do I not? We won't judge them. We'll just look, who's there? And how can I show mercy to them? How can I help? It means that as we decide who we're going to be friends with here at church, we, we won't just break into little groups of people who we kind of like by their appearance. Instead, we'll walk into the room and we'll scan round and we'll see there's someone I can help. There's someone I can show mercy to. And we'll do that as we keep in mind that on judgment day, we need God's mercy. But that mercy has triumphed over judgment. You see, a church that has been gripped by the mercy of God will be a church that is relentlessly merciful toward others. So James presents us then with a choice. Will we look at the outward appearance? Will we judge by what we can see? Will we show favoritism? Or instead, will we look around and see who it is that we can help? Who can we show mercy to? And as we see the glory of Jesus and as we see judgment day approaching, let me pray that we as a church would be those who show mercy. Shall we pray? God, our Father, we praise you that as we come together, mercy triumphs over judgment in the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you that you are a God of mercy who looks to those who are in need. We praise you that you're the God who has substituted Jesus in our place, that we might not be condemned on judgment day. And so I pray that each of us would live lives that are merciful toward others. That everyone who comes to Christchurch Mayfair will be welcomed mercifully. That we would see those who who are in need and that we would help them. Please would you make us a church like that. In Jesus' name. Amen.